When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. This is about infrastructure that can lead to economic growth for a generation. We need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Republicans have a great chance of taking the House in 2022. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome. As we restore the heart of capitalism in Washington, that's what Joe Biden says he's doing. As the president signs an executive order to promote competition and to lift wages, all in the midst of a worker shortage. We'll talk about the big EO coming up with Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Jen Rhee and later FTC, former FTC Chair William Kovacic will be with us. We'll talk as well this hour with Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss, who fought in Helmand Province. We'll talk about the drawdown in Afghanistan and the evacuation of our allies. And of course, Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis are with us. We have a full hour ahead. And thank you for sharing part of your Friday with us. The sun even came out. I'm in Bloomberg's Boston Bureau happily today looking at blue sky. We finally got through at least most of... The rain and the tough weather, the wind from Elsa. So we made it. And it seems Washington is obsessed with competition right now, or a lack of it. As we've discussed on this program more than once, there's a series of antitrust legislation in the works now on Capitol Hill. And now it's on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. Here's President Biden. I know America can't succeed unless American business succeeds. But let me be very clear. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. Speaking today at the White House, as you heard on Bloomberg Radio, the president signed an executive order to boost competition in this country, impacting almost every industry, from agriculture to airlines, banking to big tech. All in an effort, the president says, to reverse the sharp increase in consolidation that we've seen over the past 20 years. Here he is again. I expect the federal agencies, and they know this, <laughs> to help restore competition so that we have lower prices, higher wages, more money, more options, and more convenience for the American people. This is a big order. And for more detail, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Jennifer Ree. Jen, good Friday. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This executive order includes 72 initiatives by more than a dozen federal agencies, essentially the entire 
executive branch. How would this all work? That's right. And, and you know, it's not even clear that, that many of these directives or, or encouragements that are in this order can actually be implemented by the agencies uh, directed to take the measures. You know, I, I have to say that each of these agencies has its own separate enabling statute and its own rules and procedures that are unique to the agencies. So, so there are different processes and procedures that apply to the rulemaking of each one. And, and I'm certainly not an expert on each one. But with respect, let's say, to the antitrust agency, the federal Federal Trade Commission, you know, which is in here quite a bit across the board uh, in terms of rules and measures, you know, its rulemaking activity has been dormant, I mean, for many years, and the extent of its authority to actually issue certain rules, substantive rules, is unclear. So I do think, even though the FTC does have an intention to follow through, uh, to issue rules, to follow the encouragements in this executive order, they will face some hurdles and probably face some court challenges. So, yeah. so we're not really looking at a near-term threat yet. Well, does a lot. This order does a lot more than keep companies from merging or acquiring one another, getting bigger. It seeks to lower drug prices, Jen, mm-hmm. give farmers the right to repair their own tractors, yeah. make it harder for airlines to hike fees. It's coming from all sides here, and Congress gets no say in this, right? You know it. This targets all of the industries that have been coming up in academic writings for years as being way too uh, concentrated and having abuses, problems and abuses related to excessive concentration. Um, And Congress is actually already tackling some of this. I think that this executive order aligns most closely with the bill that uh, has been sponsored by Amy Klobuchar in the Senate, because Mm -hmm. her bill, unlike those in the House that really are just looking at big tech um, and trying to tame big tech, her bill actually is addressed across industries to any industries that have a concentration problem, trying to stem that tide and trying to do something about that continued concentration. And so we do have measures in Congress that are somewhat aligned in certain ways with this executive order, they certainly don't in, go into detail like, you, you know, hearing aids that should be, you know, over-the-counter rather than yes, through right. prescription, you know, into the, the weeds that this goes into. Um, but conceptually, yes, there is uh, an idea in Congress that is similar. Not to be confused with the Cicilline bills, there's a lot of this stuff in the air right now. Jen Ree is kind to help us figure it all out from Bloomberg Intelligence. It's great to have you back again, Jen. Of course, the Federal Trade Commission would handle... A lot of this work, at least some of this work, and we're joined now by a man who used to run that agency, former FTC chair William Kobasik. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. For starters, does the FTC have the capacity, the, the manpower to handle all this work? Well, one of the critical elements of the legislative packages that you just referred to includes a big boost in resources for the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice. Uh And this set of commands and aspirations we saw today can't possibly be fulfilled unless those additional resources are forthcoming. The FTC can do some of this, but if you want to take on the full agenda that you've just referred to, you have to have more resources. So that's an indispensable starting point. And would the FTC have to work with all of these other agencies? Or or as you read it, would each agency have its own separate charge? Well, the, the grand vision here is what uh, President Biden refers to as the whole of the government approach right. to competition policy. Yeah. And the aim is to join up different federal agencies in a collaborative process 
to achieve results that individually would be unattainable. So the big vision, which is enormously ambitious, is to get these different parts of the national government to work together to achieve pro-competitive ends. And we know there's a long history of government agencies doing that in some areas, mm-hmm. but it's not one big happy family, and there's going to be nothing right. easy about doing that. Well, no. Uh, look, you've been there. You know just exactly how easy it is to get a bunch of federal agencies to work together. I'm curious, though, is was this being talked about? Were, were the, the, the beginning stages of this concept being talked about in the Obama administration when you were all together? Oh, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, there have been prototypes for this in the past. And, and when you look at smaller microscopic experiments involving, say, two agencies collaborating on a specific project, there are nice success stories. But I think one lesson from all those experiences is that if you want to accomplish this vision, you're going to have to be in it for the long run. This is not a 100-meter dash. This is a marathon plus probably an ultra marathon, and it won't be credible or successful unless the president and his colleagues are willing day in to day out to say, this matters to me, and I want us to put this in place. Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Chairman, the timing of this is compelling to me because we talk so much about a worker shortage in this country, a shortage so bad that wages are rising in some cases 10, 20 percent. The Beige Book had one in Boston, went up 30 percent. The National Association of Manufacturers describes the order today as a solution in search of a problem. And I wonder if this could exaggerate what's already happening in the job market, where wages are already rising due to this shortage of labor. I think a major assumption here is that one way to draw more people into the workforce and to draw them in productively is to pay them higher wage, uh, mm-hmm. and that you're going to get better results that way. You get a better workforce, you get better outcomes, and that in a number of instances, the order is focused on opening up artificially constrained markets, where there are artificial limits on entry into a market because licensing restrictions are not well justified. So there's an ingredient here of bringing people into the workplace by taking away artificial impediments that get in their way to going into the market. In a sense, President Biden is telling the entire federal government, take a look at what you do to make sure that you don't place those obstacles in the path of people with skills. It brings us to non-compete agreements, uh, many of which I've had to sign in my career. The president says he wants them gone. Here's what he said about non-competes. Look, I'm not going to go into it now, but I used to talk about you know, there's non-compete clauses or people running um, uh, the machines that lay down asphalt. If, in fact, you uh, get offered a job and you have a, you know, you're in uh, Arkansas doing it, a lot of specific examples, you can't take a job in West Texas to do it. What in the hell does that have to do with anything? No, I'm serious. Or there were clauses in McDonald's contracts. You can't leave Burger King to go to McDonald's. Come on. Is there a trade secret about what's inside that patty? (laughs) No, but I'm serious. He's begging me to ask, where's the beef? Uh, But, Mr. Chairman, some of these are egregious. Aren't there also instances, though, where companies need non-competes to protect their intellectual property? We have only a minute left. I wonder what you thought about that. 
I think the, the, the assumption behind the executive order is that there are other ways to protect that IP, uh, mm-hmm. that you'll rely on trade secret law, that you'll still be able to protect the IP. And as, as you and Jen were saying a moment ago, there's a high likelihood that this calendar year the FTC will issue a rule that seeks to prohibit non-competes nationwide. That will be the first big measure to put this agenda in place. Make it a lot easier, I guess, here on the president. Former FTC chair Bill Kovacic, great to talk with you today, Bill. Come back and see us again. Coming up on Bloomberg Sound On, the U.S. claps back at China, putting over a dozen Chinese companies on the blacklist. What is the blacklist? We'll talk about it all with Bloomberg chief economist Tom Orlick. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Sound On here on Bloomberg Radio. Washington has spent a lot of time talking about and, well, worrying about China this week. Investors, too. After the crackdown on Didi following other major companies like Alibaba, now the Commerce Department is adding over a dozen Chinese companies to the so-called economic blacklist over alleged abuse of Uyghur Muslims and other minorities in the Xinjiang province in an autonomous region. So the first call we made was to Tom Orlick when I saw this Headline on the terminal, U.S. blacklists 14 more Chinese firms over rights abuses, essentially continuing a conversation. We started this week with Tom's big take. He's Bloomberg's chief economist, lived and worked in China for years. Welcome back, Tom. It's good to have you. Good to be here, Joe. This is a story of forced labor. Up to a million minorities, Muslims in that region, have been put into what Beijing calls re-education camps. What are those? So the concern from the international community um, and one of the drivers of this latest move by the U.S. government um, is about uh, human rights abuses in Xinjiang, uh, which is a province uh, in the northwest of China. Um, And we've seen growing concern about developments in the province. um, And now the United States, Europe, other parts of the world are starting to move against move against the Chinese government. Um, We've seen this uh, embargoes on uh, firms, which are seen as tied to activities in Xinjiang. We've also seen sanctions on officials who are seen as being tied to the human rights abuses. Mm -hmm. This blacklist, uh, we're we're adding 14 names. How how many are on it? How long is this list already? So it's interesting, Joe. Um, 
the focus is partly on firms which are from the region. Uh, Xinjiang is a big producer of uh, cotton, uh, some other agricultural products. Um, it's a place which a lot of solar panels or materials for solar panels come from. So that's part of the focus. The other part of the focus is technology firms, which are seen as, in one way or another, enabling um, Chinese policies in the region. So that's companies which produce things like surveillance cameras, for example. Mm-hmm. And this is, as I mentioned, an autonomous region. Xinjiang is somewhere the Chinese government, or at least Beijing, is not supposed to be meddling with with business. Is that correct? And 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 how could you describe that? Well, the question, Joe. Uh, I think the term autonomous might be the term. You use the term autonomous correctly. Um, Xinjiang, in common with Tibet, is referred to in China as a semi-autonomous region. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, um, it's actually in Xinjiang and Tibet where the Chinese government exercise some of their strictest controls um, and where sort of local freedom of movement uh, autonomy is actually the smallest. What does this mean, Tom, then for our relationship for trade between our two countries? Our big take today... Uh, separately looks at China's crackdown on Didi, as I mentioned. It draws the conclusion, essentially, that China and the U.S., despite all of this noise, still need each other economically. So there are various different things uh, happening at the same time, Joe. Uh, There's the long-standing concern about uh, forced technology transfer, intellectual property theft, um, subsidies for Chinese firms that give them an unfair advantage in global markets. And those were the concerns that prompted the trade war under the Trump administration uh, and prompted the tariffs uh, moving into place. Um, There are also concerns uh, in the West about human rights abuses um, in Xinjiang, which are prompting these sanctions against specific firms from the region and other firms who are allegedly involved um, in in Chinese government activities there. Um, And then the DD piece of it is separate again. The DD piece of it, DD for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the company, is kind of the Chinese Uber. Yeah. Um, the concern there for the Chinese is about data. They don't want the data which DD has on where all of their drivers are and where all their passengers are and who's going where. They don't want that data to be available to investors in the United States or even less, the U.S. government. So you have all of these things, concerns about fairness in trade, concerns about human rights, concerns about data and national security, um, and they all point towards a fraying of ties, a sort of a disintegration, a breakdown in U.S.-China ties across across trade, across finance, across data. There's a lot there, and I would point everyone to the big take uh, today. China's DD crackdown is all about controlling big data. It will add a lot of context to this blacklist story. Tom Orlick, great to have you back, and thanks for spending part of your Friday with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. The great example that's drawn up in this story, by the way, is Tom talks about the concern about sharing data. Shortly after Beijing's shock cybersecurity probe into Didi, it says Chinese social media users furiously passed around a 2015 story on the Uber-like app that showed what might be spooking President Xi. Screenshots circulated of a Breezy state media report, it, we, we read here, on a DD study, it revealed how bureaucrats use the company's services 
on two sweltering July days in Beijing. You could actually follow them and figure out where they were going. Coming up on Bloomberg, the fence around the U.S. Capitol is coming down. We're going to talk about security around the Capitol and the drawdown in Afghanistan and protecting our allies who are still there with Congressman Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts, a Marine who fought in Helmand Province. He's next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Great to have you with us. Thanks for spending part of your Friday here on Bloomberg Radio. One of the biggest questions hanging over the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan. What will happen to the Afghan interpreters, drivers, and others who helped to protect Americans over the past 20 years? We'll talk about that and security around the Capitol coming up with Congressman Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts. There are thousands of men and women in Afghanistan who risked their lives to protect Americans over the past two decades. Interpreters, drivers... Helpers, we hear about so often now that their lives are potentially at risk. President Biden explained yesterday that they cannot be evacuated to the U.S. along with our troops due to existing law. And today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was pressed on the long wait times they're facing for visas. What we are trying to determine is U.S. facilities and bases that are located in uh, different parts of the world uh, where we can house uh, these brave and courageous individuals while their processing continues. It's an important issue for Congressman Jake Auchincloss, a Democrat from Massachusetts and a Marine who fought in Helmand Province where he led combat patrols as a captain in 2012. And he's with us now. Congressman, welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. Good to be back. How concerned are you that some of these men and women will be left behind? It's about keeping our promise as Americans. Several years ago, Donald Trump turned his back on the Kurds after we made promises to them during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and they were massacred. We cannot repeat that mistake here, and I don't think President Biden will. President Biden has been keeping his promises in the first six months of his administration, and I think he's going to keep his promise to bring these 18,000 or so interpreters out of harm's way and ultimately to the United States or wherever they feel secure. Is he doing the right thing by pulling out troops next month? Yes. 20 years is long enough. We could fight another 100 years in Afghanistan. We would win every battle against the Taliban as we did when I was there and still lose the war because while we have been able to give Afghans many of the tools of nationhood from state institutions to economic development, to an army, we cannot build a nation for them. They must do that. Yeah, you were operating in villages that were contested by the Taliban. How does it feel this many years later to know the Taliban is, is on the way to taking back the country? Well, to be blunt, it was obvious in 2012 when I was there that they were going to take back the parts of the country was? I was patrolling through. Absolutely. This has never been a military solution. And that is the real tragedy of the last 20 years, is that while the military, the U.S. military and its NATO allies 
operated with great professionalism and executed honorably. They were never given a mission by politicians here in the United States that was actually achievable. This is a political and nation-building exercise that must be led by Afghans themselves. It cannot be policed by NATO and U.S. military forces. How does a young man or a young woman enlisted rationalize that, though? You leave your family, you leave your country, you put your life on the line in a scary place overseas. You've seen your brothers and sisters in combat, in some cases, fall. Some don't make it home. And then you hear from the president, there's no mission accomplished moment. And I know that there's, there's a lot of complexity around that statement. But there is not going to be a victory parade here, Congressman. Just because there's no victory finish line doesn't mean no good was done. We decimated the Taliban. We killed Osama bin Laden. We, along with NGOs and our NATO allies, architected many of the institutions of the Afghan state. We empowered women and girls. We uh, provided for an economic future for many Afghans. We built an Afghan army and trained it and provided logistical support. The tools are there for Afghan nationhood and for more stability, but the central government in Kabul, and the Afghan people must now seize it. Well, to that end, I thank you for your service, Congressman. And I'd like to ask you about security around the Capitol building following January 6th. is something that I talked to you about shortly after that happened. People should know that day was essentially your introduction to Congress. (laughs) Second time on the House floor, yes, indeed. What are you remembering at this point from that day as a security bill and a security enhancement bill sits for months in the Senate going, it seems right now, nowhere? Well, it's ironic that Republicans are on their way to voting to defund the police for the second time in the 117th Congress. We need to provide the Capitol Police the personnel and the training required to keep the Capitol safe. At the same time, I think the removal of the temporary fencing is the right thing to do. I've been calling for that for months, in fact. The Capitol should be permeable to the public. It should be open to journalists and advocates and constituents and taxpayers who want to come and hold me and my colleagues accountable, as they well should. It's the people's house. You can have both a permeable Capitol that the public feels like they can access along with what's called in military parlance a hard target, something that would be difficult to attack. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, and we need to, uh, and in fact, I think it's core to our democracy that we're able to do both. Your story from the 6th was harrowing, and I, I think we can agree that you came pretty close to some real trouble that day. What do you tell your colleagues in the House, your Republican colleagues in the House who voted against a, a January 6th commission, or your colleagues in the Senate who refused to advance this bill? They're choosing Trump over truth, and the GOP has had so many forks in the road over the last several years to do what's right by the country and the Constitution, and instead they keep on choosing to bow down to this narcissist who has never done anything for them and cares only for himself. The GOP needs to break this fever. They you had a shared experience, though, Congressman. You guys were in danger together. Do you remind them of that? Uh, you know, as a general rule, me and my office, we work with Republicans who recognize that Joe Biden was the free and fair winner of, of the elections in 2020. We really do not work with Republicans who are circulating the big lie and doubling down on sedition. Well, that answers that. 
I'd like to talk to you again uh, if and when that legislation moves or when we get some findings from the January 6th commission. And as I sit here in a sunny afternoon, a sunny Friday back in Boston for just a moment, I thank you, Congressman Jake Auchincloss, for being with us. Coming up on Bloomberg Sound On, to the moon, or at least the edge of space. For Richard Branson, Virgin Galactic, this is the big weekend. We're going to talk about this weekend's launch and the battle of the billionaires next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us today on Bloomberg Sound On, brought to you by SEI. Asset managers don't get results that are off the charts when their solutions are off the shelf. Learn how SEI's operating platform can turn infrastructure into a competitive advantage at seic.com slash IMS. So I flew on an airplane this morning for the first time since COVID. Didn't even really think about it till I got on the plane, put the mask on. It had been a year and a half since I took a flight anywhere. It had been so long that flying was actually kind of a thrill again. As I looked out the window across the world, I thought about Richard Branson and what is possibly motivating him to take the risk of flying to space this weekend. Well, the edge of space. Virgin Galactic makes its next big test flight Sunday. Branson will be on board, as you've been hearing. This is a long goal for him, something he talked about with Bloomberg's Ashley Vance several years ago. It is rocket science. Uh, it is uh, really difficult. We're just reinventing the wheel completely, reinventing the technology. So um, it's been tough, but we now have uh, you know, rockets that we know will take us to space. You know, we feel confident that we're finally very, very close to being there. And ahead of our coverage on Sunday, we are joined by none other than Bloomberg Businessweek's Ashley Vance, along with the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis hanging out with us on a Friday. Welcome to all of you. Ashley, thanks for coming in. You spent some time with Branson, obviously. You've been to Spaceport America. What is driving him to do this? Virgin Galactic has already had a, a fatal accident. This is this is not just fun and games. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an important point. Um, you know, Richard's been at this a, a long time. I mean, I think part of it is the, is the showman in him, and, and part of it is just wanting to have this unique experience. He's always been something of an uh, adventurer, um, you know, that 
that clip that you played points to how hard that is. I think that was around 2016 or That's 2017. Right. Yeah. And he thought, you know, he thought basically they were going to launch within a few months, and that was after already years of delays. So um, he's been after this for a long time, so he must want it bad. <laughs> this isn't a real industry, though, right? This is This is going to usher in. And we can have fun with the Bezos versus Branson stuff. And it's going to be a couple companies doing this. But this will officially usher in space tourism as, as a real thing. People can pay money, whether it's $250,000 or more, as they say, to actually buy a ticket on this thing. Yeah, you know, it looks like it. I mean, we used to have, people might sort of forget. I mean, for a, a period of years there, we had very rich people that could buy trips to the International Space Station. And, and those were, you know, much longer trips than, than what these guys are offering today. But this is the first time we've seen real private, um, well, now public companies, but, uh, you know, proper companies going out there yeah. full time. And, and they have these two launches happening in about a week of each other. And so this thing, it is kicking off in earnest now, you know, God willing that uh, things go well. While you're here, Ashley, I have to ask, do you, do you call him Richard when you talk to him? <laughs> Richard, I do. He's, uh, he's been surprisingly casual when we've interacted. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you could be here. You're, are you part of our coverage on Sunday? You've spent a lot of time out there. And yeah, I know we've yeah, got a big know, I, show coming. Yeah, I, 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 do, I will be, yeah. Excellent. It starts Sunday morning at 9. Ashley Vance, thanks for being here. We'll be listening and watching. Jeannie and Rick are with us. Happy Friday, guys. I'm just... <laughs> Would you pay any money, never mind $250,000, to put your life on the line to get a you know, a 20-minute shot of the Earth, Rick? You know, there have been mornings when I've woken up and thought I was weightless, so I'm not going to spend any <laughs> extra money doing that. How about you, Jeannie? Um, I probably wouldn't as I'm a bit scared of heights, but I have to say I'm incredibly jealous of Ashley for being able to be out there. I would like to be on the ground and witness it, not necessarily up there. Plus, I, I can't afford it at this point, Joe. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the business side of this because it's a big one. Uh, SpaceX has been doing this for a long time. Before everyone knew Elon Musk as the Tesla guy, they were putting uh, rockets and supporting the shuttle mission. Uh, from Cape Canaveral for a very long time. Now, this is a whole new era of private space exploration and, in fact, tourism. And, Rick Davis, when you think about the regulatory side of this, it's one thing, but the business side, the, the potential profits could be huge. Yeah, the, the profits could be huge. And don't forget the, the, the commercial application. I mean, it's one thing to take folks up to the space station, another thing to, you know, do tourism. Yeah. But one of the things SpaceX has really done with its Dragon capsule has turned space into accessible activity for, you know, people who want to put up low Earth orbit satellites, changing communication, changing weather prediction, uh, uh, just amazing enhancements in the use of space in everyday life. And Jeannie, we're not paying the Russians to do it like we were for many years. Well, that's right. And of course, we, we know that they are trying to vie with Tom Cruise and SpaceX to get their actress up into space to film for the first time in October. <laughs> See who wins that race. But but the business side of this is really critical because some of the estimates are a market value of about $3 billion by 2030. And even just the suborbital sort of, uh, the, as you look at that versus the orbital tourism, they're talking about a $2.8 billion value and the next, you know, less than 10 
years. So this is potentially very big money. But of course, you're also talking an incredibly enormous risk. And of right. course, nobody knows that better than, than Virgin Atlantic. So think of how much is on the line here then, Rick Davis. Jeannie set that up pretty well. Uh, you're talking about the, the commercial applications here that are frankly limitless. If one of these billionaires, though, we've got Branson on Sunday and Jeff Bezos will go up with Blue Origin to actual space on July 20th. Both of these are going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Should something go wrong with either of them, does that put this whole idea in jeopardy? For sure. Uh, I have a lot of practical experience. In, in 1986, I was the White House coordinator for the Domestic Policy Council when uh, the Challenger uh, uh, broke apart. Oh, and, and we had to build an entire commission uh, around the understanding of what are the limits to space, what are we doing with the shuttle program, and it shut everything down for almost three years uh, in order to determine you know, what is the best risk going forward. And so we hope everything goes smoothly. Nobody loves a space launch more than Rick Davis does, but um, <laughs> we have to be careful because there are a lot of risks associated with space still. Our producer, Christine, threw a story in front of me from the New York Times today, Jeannie. I couldn't believe it, but brokers say neither of them, neither Bezos nor Branson, have bought insurance coverage in case of an accident. Is this just one big ego trip with these two guys? You know, it. I saw that. It is really stunning. Um, the 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 craft seem to be. Uh, you know, they they are going to be okay should anything happen. But but not these gentlemen. You know, I, I think Rick make Rick's makes a really good point. Looking back at 1986, uh, you know, we all remember that. And what did NASA do after that? They made very clear, sort of strict guidelines as to who could go up. And of course, you weren't going to have another teacher up there. So should something happen, this could slow this. You know. Obviously, the loss of human life being most important, but this could also slow this race way down. So the risks are enormous, but you see a lot of very, very wealthy people interested in pursuing this. I think one of the data points I saw was, you know, over a certain amount of income, you've got almost 40% of people interested in paying their way to get yeah, up there, even that. just for several seconds. I think Branson told Ashley in that same interview that, that we took that, uh, that sound cut from that about half the people watching listening to bloomberg want to pay to go to space look that this is this is the crowd here but talk to me about the carmen line rick davis i i don't want to get everybody upset but it is true richard branson's technically not going to space and jeff bezos is yeah and there's a little bit of uh, trash talk going on this week yes, about that um you know, the design of, uh, of Bezos's program had always been, you know, to go 60 miles up, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, ex ex you know, beyond the Carmen line. That's right. And in this case, the, 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 the Branson, Sir Richard Branson's plane, is, <laughs> as Bezos calls it, um, will, will only go 55 miles up and not break that plane. So um, <laughs> I, I think there's a, it's, it, the competition is steep right now. And no if I'm doubt. Richard Branson, I'm, I've got my engineers in there going, it's five <laughs> miles. It's five miles. Why can't I get there? <laughs> and of course, you know, Virgin Galactic uh, Genie is saying, yeah, but we've got a better view of the earth. <laughs> Look how big our windows are and your pictures will be better. Again, doesn't this speak to the ego battle going on here?
It, it does. And of course, they're saying Jeff Bezos, he'll only be up there about four minutes. So not a big <laughs> deal after all, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a big battle going on here. And I think Richard Branson has made the case that he wants Virgin Atlantic to make commercial space flight, you know, to democratize that essentially, to make it something that is common. But I think as we battle COVID and all the things we have here on the ground and at home, there are big ethical questions to be raised to all of these people about is the money better spent in other ways? And that's something, mm -hmm. of course, these are people who have all given a lot of money to the environment and other things, but those are big questions they have to address. Why do this now? All great points from Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. I love spending every Friday with you guys. Well, every day we can do this. Have a great weekend. It all reminds me of the quote I woke up to this morning on the Bloomberg app from Dr. Peter Ferdinand Drucker. The only thing we know about the future is that it's going to be different. Can we at least agree on that? Keep your eyes to the skies. I'll be off next week. Meet you back here the following Monday for the best politics show on the radio. Bloomberg Sound Off. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.